This morning our gospel lesson is going to come from John chapter 19, verse 28. And I invite you to stand as you are able in body or in spirit for the reading of our gospel lesson this morning. After this, when Jesus knew that all was now finished, he said, in order to fulfill the scripture, I am thirsty. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. You ever been really thirsty? Now, I'm not talking about you're at the movies and you're bored and you get the 55-ounce drum of Coke to wash down your popcorn while you're watching Spider-Man. I'm not talking about that. And I'm, I'm not talking about the, you know, boy, I sure would like a Mountain Dew right about now. No, I'm talking about, I'm, talk, I'm not even talking about the kind, of, the kind of thirst you get when you're working in the yard. You know, that, that you're working in the yard or when you were young, you were, you were playing, playing football or playing sports with your, with your friends. In Bogachetta playing football, um, you know, water at Bogachetta football growing up was not, a, was not a right, it was a reward. You know, Co- Coach Barron took an old water hose, and he took that water hose and strapped it to the fence post. And then he got an ice pick, and he poked holes in the water hose, and he cut it on, and that's what we drank water when we played football. We probably all got COVID and hepatitis and <laughs> Ebola. You name it, we probably caught it that water hose football field because it was disgusting. And you also do not want to be the first person. If you ever, we're going to show, remember the old Fox 40 thing, you might be a redneck if? Okay. We're going to see who's really from the country here because you know this, when you get the water hose out, the, the last thing you want to do when you cut the water on to the water hose, you do not want to take a drink straight from the hose at that point, do you? You do not because that water is hot and it tastes like plastic. You let your brother or sister drink first. And then you go behind and drink when it's got cold and it doesn't taste as much like plastic as, the, as those things. So... I'm not even really talking about that kind of thirst. You know, I'm talking about that, oh, man, I would do anything, anything for just something to lick on even, you know? The, the, the time I've seen it the most as a pastor, typically is right after surgery. People wake up from surgery, and they're usually so thirsty. And, you know, right after surgery, your stuff isn't working right. So they don't want you to go eat a ham sandwich or, or drink a Coca-Cola. They want, you, they want your body to wake up before they start giving you all the good stuff. So if you're lucky, they'll give you an ice chip to sip on or chew on for a little bit as your body wakes up to kind of quench the thirst. I'll tell you the worst I've seen if you've, any of you have ever had heart surgery. You know, I've been told by church members I've had heart surgery. That's the, the worst thirst there is because you're also, after heart surgery, they want to limit your fluid intake. So they typically don't let you have a, even the ice chips. I, I've learned the, 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 the pro tip on that one is um, keep some Listerine breath strips in your pocket or keep them nearby because at least you put a breath strip in, it kind of moistens your mouth and, and helps you out. But being, being thirsty is, is no fun, is it? Like, I'm not, like I said, I'm not just talking about, I'm not just talking about at 2 o'clock it's time to get something to drink. I'm talking like that actual oh, thirst, you know? And the thing about that kind of thirst is, Coke doesn't make that thirst better, does it? Makes you thirstier. Sweet tea doesn't make that thirst better, makes you thirstier. What do you want? You want water. Water is the only thing that's going to really cure that thirst. You know, the Bible's full of things like that, isn't it? 
He leadeth me beside the still waters. He restoreth my soul. As the deer pants for the water or longs for the water, so my soul longeth after thee. The Bible's full of examples of water and refreshment, water and recovery, water and life even. You know, we're, we're made for this. It's, um, it's interesting. If you've, ever, if, you've ever, if you've ever fasted, like for a real long time period, at least for a day or two, you're going to find out that you're not really hungry at 2 o'clock. You're just used to eating then. In fact, that 2 o'clock cup of coffee that you want, you, studies have shown us that 2 o'clock cup of coffee you want, you don't really need the caffeine. You know what you need? You need the water. You get dehydrated as the day goes along. And so you, uh, you really, that two o'clock, what you really need to pick up your energy is not going to be another cup of coffee. It's going to be a good glass of water. That'll kind of refresh you and renew you. There's something within us that really desires that water. We thirst. We desire it. We need it. So that's why I think it's so interesting. You know, we're, we're in this Lenten time. We're talking about the last words of Jesus upon the cross. And every, that, think about if you were going to go away on a trip. If you were going to, you know, Jesus is fixing to die, go to the grave, and ascend into heaven. This is going to be some of the last words he says to his disciples. So if you're fixing to go, go, go away, you're going to make sure the words you say are important. You're not just going to add in some trivial word or trivial saying. So I think every word that Jesus says upon the cross has great meaning in this moment. That's why we're studying them. I think there's something really big and something interesting for us to learn from every last word of Jesus upon the cross. Last week we talked about um, how he said, oh God, my God, how, how, why have you forsaken me? Which was actually not a cry of defeat, but a cry of victory. When you read Psalm 22, it's basically laid out the crucifixion. But today, we see him say something this, which is interesting. I thirst. Huh. Of all the stuff Jesus could say, why that one? Why that one? I think there's a couple of interesting things we can learn about this that, that are important when this thing. But first, let's think about, let's go back to the cross. I think it's important for us to understand what is happening on the cross, y'all. Of all the ways we humans have come up with to kill each other, I don't know if there's a worse way to die than the cross. They strip you down. You're out there nailed to a cross. You, you, can't, you can't breathe hardly. You gotta, your, your feet are nailed together, so you've got to push up with your feet to catch your breath and breathe. You typically die of asphyxiation, lack of breathing, or even fluid on your lungs. That's why they broke the legs of the other thieves, because when their legs were broken, they couldn't push up. And they just couldn't breathe any longer. Like, it's, it's a terrible way to die. And you're out there in the bacon hot sun as well. They're crucifying you in the middle of the day. Because they want everybody to see it. And they want it to be as rough as possible. So there he was, bleeding, bruised, beaten, dying. And he says, I thirst. It shows the, the great evil, if you will, or the great pain that the cross caused upon Jesus. But he said, I thirst. And there's two, really two reasons why I believe that he said that. First, the scripture tells us, the first one says here in verse 28, 
He says, when Jesus knew that the time was finished, he said, in order to fulfill Scripture, I am thirsty. Psalm 69 verse 21 says, they gave me poison for food, and for my thirst, they gave me vinegar to drink. Last week, we talked of Psalm 22. And if you were to read Psalm 22, Psalm 22 basically is a recounting of the entire crucifixion. Everything that happened in the crucifixion happened that Psalm 22 talks about. Here, we see Psalm 69 saying, they gave me this. What does Jesus say? He requested to fulfill the prophecy here in Psalm 69. Y'all, I think, I think sometimes, I think we look at the Bible wrong sometimes. I think, this, I, think this is, this, I think this is how we look at the Bible and how we look at the story of the Scriptures. We see, we see Genesis 1 and 2. Man, everything is great. They got the trees. They got the fruit. They got the garden. 1 and 2 are great. It's awesome. Then in chapter 3, sin enters in. They eat the fruit they shouldn't eat from. And we see God going, oh, man, I didn't expect that to happen. Man, they did that? What am I going to do? So we, we read the Bible that way. And so we see, we see God going, oh, man, well, um, I better flood this place with Noah. That didn't work. I guess I better try Abraham. But, man, that didn't work. I better try Moses. Well, that didn't work. Let me try David. That didn't work. Then I better try the prophets. That didn't work. Well, dadgum. I tried everything. I guess I better send Jesus because nothing else is going to work. We read the scriptures looking at it like Jesus is God's last option, our last plan. When the scriptures tell us the entire time that Jesus was the plan the entire time. Jesus wasn't God's last option. Jesus was the purpose the entire time. We need to read all the Bible looking for Jesus, y'all. Jesus is across all of Scripture. There's not a part of Scripture that's not pointing us to Christ, that's not pointing us to Jesus. Jesus bathes all the Bible. So we see in Genesis 3 when they fail, what is God Cursed the serpent, he says, "On your on the belly of your uh, on your belly, you're gonna uh, you're gonna crawl." And her, I'll put enmity between her offspring and your offspring, and you will nip at his head, and he will crush your heel. In other, in other words, at some point, an offspring of Mary will crush the head of the serpent. Who is that offspring? Jesus. Jesus is the offspring who will crush the head of the serpent. Jesus wasn't God's last hope. Jesus was the plan the entire time. He was the lamb that was slain before the foundations of the world. Look at the Passover and the Passover and the Passover. The Jews are commanded to take a spotless lamb, sacrifice the spotless lamb, place the blood of the lamb on the doorpost of their home. And when the angel of death sees the blood of the lamb on the doorpost, the angel of death will pass over because of the blood of the lamb. Hello? That's ah, just a coincidence. I wouldn't read anything into that. 
No, of course not. Even in that moment, it is telling us about what's going to happen with Jesus. It's telling us about God's plan. It's telling us about God's activity. It's telling us about God's work. God is always at work. He is bringing all of Scripture and all of creation to Jesus. He is always at work, y'all. And he's bringing it here. Jesus said, I thirst to fulfill the prophecy given in that passage. God is bringing it to that. God is always at work, y'all. And here's the thing about it is, here's what it means for us today. That means God's at work even when we don't believe it. Even when we don't feel it. Even when we don't understand it, God is at work. Romans 8, 28, all things work for good for those who love God and are called according to his purposes. Even if you don't understand what's happening, even if it doesn't make a lick of sense to you, even if you don't like it, it doesn't mean God's not at work in it somehow. Look at the Jews. Look at the last prophet in the Old Testament was Malachi. You know how long it was between Malachi's prophecy and the birth of Jesus? 400 years. They went 400 years without hearing from God. 400 years. But you know know what they did? They kept being faithful. They kept working and serving and being God's people. Because even though they hadn't heard from God, even though they hadn't heard God's voice, even though they had even though they hadn't felt it, they still kept being faithful because they believed it. Just because they did not feel God's presence or hear God's voice, it did not mean that God was absent from them. I think we would all agree that probably the best example, or one of the best examples of a Christian in the last hundred years was Mother Teresa, right? I think we'd all agree, yeah, she, if anybody lived out the gospel, she did a pretty good job. I think we'd all agree with that. Interesting, if you look at Mother Teresa's career in life, she was a, she was a, a she was a, a, basically not a nanny, but a tutor, a teacher in a very um, upper, upper wealthy school in India. And she was riding a train, and she felt God called her specifically to be in ministry with the poorest and the sickest and the most hurting there in India. And so she left her position of privilege to do that because she felt God called her to that night moment on that train. If you read her diaries, you know what you find out? She never felt the presence of God like that ever again. She spent the rest of her life looking for that again. She never felt it. But she kept being faithful because even though she didn't feel it, she knew that God had called her to it. God was bringing all of this to Jesus. God has a plan and a purpose with creation, and God has a plan and purpose in your life and for your life. And even if you don't feel it, even if you feel like your prayers are bouncing off the ceiling, keep praying, keep being faithful, keep serving, keep loving, keep chasing after Jesus. Because whether you feel him or not, God is there. He has a plan. We see this scripture fulfilled, that prophecy. I think that's one reason why he said out there. There's another reason why. 
I think, I think with him saying he thirst, it shows the humanity of Jesus Christ. And let me tell you what I mean by that. It's very interesting. If you go back and look at the writings of the early church, the first three to four centuries of the church, it's very interesting. They did not struggle with the humanity of Jesus. Jesus being a human made perfect sense to them. They understood that. They walked with him. They talked with him. They understood that he was fully human. They got that part. What they struggled to understand was the divinity of Jesus. They didn't quite understand how this man they walked with and talked with and ate with and slept beside and this man that was part of the life, how could this man, our Messiah, our rabbi, our teacher, how could this person also be the divine son of God. So if you read so much of the early church writings, they're struggling with that. Think about the Nicene Creed. How much of the Nicene Creed's about defining Jesus' divinity? True God from true God. Eternally begotten the Father, not, not, not made. True light from true light. Eternal. You know, like that creed, the first chunk of it is about defining Jesus' divinity. They understood his humanity. They struggled to understand his divinity. We're the exact opposite. We get the divinity of Jesus. Jesus being the Son of God makes sense to us. Jesus being God's Son makes perfect sense to us. Walking on water, got it. Healing the sick, sure thing. But Jesus being human? Jesus having an upset stomach occasionally? Jesus being lonely? A little sad? Birds have nests, foxes have dens, but the Son of Man hath nowhere to lay his head. Jesus grieving the loss of his best friend Lazarus when he goes beside the tomb to weep, even though he was the way, the truth, and the life, and the resurrection himself. Yeah, we struggle with that part. <laughs> we struggle with that. The divinity makes sense. The humanity is more difficult for us. But, but y'all, it's, it's essential. It's essential. Because without the humanness of Jesus, without his human nature, he could not be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Because it was we as humans who messed up. <laughs> it was Adam and Eve. And it was me and you. Humans. And when you do something wrong, you got to make it right, don't you? You know? You got you to gotta make it right. Now, here's the deal. Sometimes, also in your life right now, there's some folk who have done you wrong, who you're still mad at, because they hadn't yet said, I'm sorry. You got some folk in your mind right now that, you don't, that you're still pretty, got a grudge against, you're pretty upset with, because they hadn't done anything to make it right. And that eats at your heart. And last night, you couldn't sleep because you were so, so preoccupied with what they did. You know what? They slept just fine last night. Doesn't bother them. They slept like a baby. Unforgiveness is you drinking a poison and expecting it to kill them. They're, they're fine, not bothering them. But it's killing us. Even if they hadn't asked, it does our soul good to forgive. But for reconciliation to happen, it's got to be made right. 
And because of the sins of humans, a human had to make it right. So we needed the humanness of Jesus to perfectly atone for our sins and to make it right with the Father. But we need the divinity of Jesus to restore things, to make it right in the cosmos. Because here's the thing with it is, Jesus' death was more than just about saving me and you. Jesus' death and Jesus' resurrection was about restoring what sin had taken. We see in Genesis 3 that when Adam and Eve fail, it didn't just affect them, it affects me and you, but it affects all of creation. What did God say to Adam? Cursed is the ground because of you. What did, what did Paul say in Romans 8? That creation was subjected to futility, not by its own will, by the will of the one who subjected it. In hopes for its eventual redemption, all of creation is groaning now as if in pangs of childbirth. In other words, that when Adam and Eve fell, they didn't just mess things up for me and you as humans, but they messed it up for all of creation. So the cross of Christ atoned for mine and your sin. The resurrection of Christ restores which sin has taken and begins the restoration process of our soul and of all of creation. So then we go to Revelation 21 where this whole truck's headed when a new heaven and a new earth comes down, a new, a new heaven and a new earth comes and all things are restored and all things are made right. And so see how scripture is ultimately not just building towards the cross of Christ. The scripture is building towards the return of Christ. That God has a plan, that Jesus Christ was the plan the entire time, not just to forgive me and you as humans, but to restore everything the devil's taken. Because, y'all, that's ultimately where this is going. God's a God of restoration, and God's a God of transformation. I mean, look at the symbol here, this cross. Doesn't this cross give us peace? Think about 9-11. Remember that cross that was left in the rubble of the two steel beams? And how for many of us that was a calming symbol of hope? The cross is the hangman's noose. The cross is the electric chair. The cross is the firing squad. The cross was a tool that Rome used to strike fear in its opponents. Rome didn't crucify anybody. Rome crucified folks they wanted to make an example of. Rome wanted you to see this cross and not think peace, but think fear. That I better act right or Rome's going to get me. And what does Jesus do? What does the divinity and the humanity of Jesus do through the atonement? He transforms it. And this Roman symbol of pain and death and loss and hurt becomes for us a sign of hope and of peace and of restoration. God is in the transformation business. And that's what Jesus does on the cross. That's why we needed his humanity to forgive our sins, but his divinity to restore our life and transform us. God restores. God takes this symbol of Roman violence and turns it to a symbol of peace. God restores. God transforms. God transforms us, 
and God transforms others. So there's somebody right now in your mind that you're tempted to give up on. You're tempted to just write them off. Give up on them. Don't do that. God hadn't given up on them yet. You don't do it either. God's in the restoration business. And God's in the transformation business. And likewise, there's some place in your life, some wound, some hurt, some loss, some place where the darkness abides. God longs to transform that place in your life now. God longs to redeem that place now. God longs to restore that place now. God longs to bring light to that dark place that exists, that brokenness, that hurt, that loss, that whatever. God longs to take that place and transform it into something beautiful. All things work for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Romans 8, 28. Even the cross, the Roman, the Roman tool of death is redeemed. God redeems even the ugly things. But y'all, here's the deal. We got to give it to him. We can't reach to heaven with closed fist. Not giving to God the broken place. We got to reach with open hands. Letting him have it. Giving it to him. God cannot help us with the things that we will not give to him. If we keep our fists closed around it, God can't help us. But it's until we unclench our hands and let it go that his transformative grace can restore what sin has caused. May we as his people now unclench our fist and give him the broken places of our life that he may restore them. Let's pray.